A big portion of internal medicine is two well-esteemed attendings arguing over whether or not the patient has extra volume. Hi, this is Alice. This is Shafali. And you're listening to Pete Zatman. Alice, I feel like one of the things that truly terrifies me about treating adults is dealing with undifferentiated chest pain, but also specifically acute coronary syndrome. Yes, I agree. This is a high risk situation, and I haven't managed it many times as a pediatric resident. So today we are sitting down with Ashley Park and Charles Creasel, and they are two MedPeds residents or who are going to help us parse out the situation. We can't wait for you guys to hear this episode. We think it's one of our best ones yet. And uh, without further ado, here's Ashley and Charles. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are excited to talk about chest pain, but first we want to hear who you are and where you're from. Hey, I'm Ashley. I'm a second-year MedPeds resident. And I'm Charles. I'm also a second-year MedPeds resident. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Let's start with the basics. We're excited to make this episode because we are concerned that we'll be taking care of an adult and we won't assess their chest pain appropriately. So we've got an adult patient on the floor for chest pain. For the patient's sake, I'm hoping it's just GERD or costochondritis or something like that. But what are the things on my differential that I really can't miss? Yeah, so chest pain is definitely not an uncommon occurrence on really any adult ward. You'll probably encounter it at least one time almost every night. And the first thing that you need to go through, as with any new symptom presentation, is you want to try and parse between the things that will immediately harm the patient and the things that are less concerning causes of the symptom, in this case, chest pain. Um, So of course we have in broad terms, we think of chest pain as cardiac and non-cardiac. Cardiac including acute coronary syndrome, which includes things like angina, STEMIs and NSTEMIs. But then there are also causes of cardiac chest pain that are things you also don't want to miss. That includes aortic dissection, pericarditis or myocarditis, and there are ways to, to ask questions and uh, look at the vital signs and things like that to, to figure out whether the source of chest pain is cardiac or non-cardiac. As far as non-cardiac causes of chest pain that are also of immediate concern are things like pulmonary embolism, uh, pneumothorax, esophageal rupture, or really sometimes you can even get referred pain from the abdomen from something like a ruptured peptic ulcer, and that can also mimic chest pain. Wow. Okay. So basically your first step, your first branching point is cardiac, non-cardiac. And, you know, we have to think pretty broadly in terms of our differential, even for non-cardiac, trying not to forget our sort of less common diagnoses, but really our important thing that we want to rule out being something like angina or STEMI and STEMI. What are the follow-up questions that you have for a patient to kind of get a better understanding of what's going on? Um, So I think first differentiating if this is Anginal chest pain versus not is probably the first thing that you should do. And I think cardiac chest pain presents itself slightly differently than um, non-cardiac chest pain. And so typically I ask her questions like, is this, um, what kind of pain is it? So is it squeezing, crushing, pressure-like? And that's kind of your classic teaching of what angina feels like. Anginal chest pain is not easily locatable on the chest. So people can't really point to a single place on the chest saying that this is where the source of my pain is. And so it's really, it's 
frustrating and vague initially, but I think that's fairly typical of ischemic type chest pain. And then the other classic teaching is that it radiates to your left arm, the neck, the jaw, you have diaphoresis with it, you have a lot of dyspnea with it. And what I've been taught at least is that actually before the chest pain, if patients are complaining that they had dyspnea with exertion or exercise intolerance, then you should think angina or ischemic type chest pain as the top thing on your differential. And obviously, with the other diagnoses that Charles mentioned, like the pulmonary embolism, the pneumothorax, those things also have different sets of questions within themselves. So if they have pleuritic chest pain, or, or if their primary complaint is dyspnea, or if they have a history of retching and vomiting, then you would think like esophageal rupture. But I think it's just important to ask the questions about, is this ischemic chest pain first before going further? And then what does a patient need to do to get you to start to work them up with blood work, EKGs, everything like that? What clinical picture do you need to see? That's a really great question. And the truth is the average adult patient who's admitted to the hospital is typically older. They typically have multiple risk factors for ischemic cardiac events, CAD or coronary artery disease, um, hypertension, diabetes. So we're pretty much going to do some sort of a workup on almost anybody who presents with uh, new onset chest pain. There are select situations, you know, somebody who is admitted to the hospital specifically for acute coronary syndrome, got revascularized and is having uh, recurrent angina, that kind of person you maybe don't have to reorder a whole set of labs on. But the average person with a new onset of chest pain admitted to the hospital will get some sort of a workup. And that's going to include a broad set of labs that includes a CBC, a CMP. You want to get your electrolytes. And that includes magnesium and phosphorus. You want to get an iCal and then other cardiac biomarkers such as uh, troponin, a BNP can be a good marker of possible underlying heart failure. And then, of course, you want to get your trusty EKG to start looking for any EKG abnormalities. And then, like we mentioned, there are multiple other causes of chest pain that don't include cardiac. So it is completely within reason, and you really should get uh, a chest X-ray. And based on those labs, uh, you can determine where to go from there. Um, so from what I remember from med school, ACS can present differently, in particularly in women. What are some of the symptoms you see in, you know, non-classic symptoms of ACS? So, I mean, that's excellent. I think women proven throughout studies have had poorer outcomes when it comes to ACS because they don't present with the classic symptoms that um, you would associate with ischemic type chest pain. And so, I mean, it's harder a lot because they have very nonspecific pain or they have abdominal pain, fatigue, a dyspnea as their primary complaint. And so just ischemia looks a little bit different in women. And so I think it just having a lower threshold to order your troponin or get a 12 EDKG in that setting is important. When you guys are sort of thinking about this, about to start your workup, do you use do you use the vital signs to sway you one way or the other ever? Or is it normal heart rate, normal blood pressure, totally expected? Yeah, so that's <laughs> um, – I'd be hard-pressed to find a patient who's admitted to the hospital who actually has normal everything. But I, I will say ra rather than using the vital signs to determine who gets a workup and who doesn't, because pretty much everyone's going to get some sort of workup, you can use it to figure out – and risk stratify the patients who maybe you should call cardiology on the earlier side for. 
somebody who is typically quite hypertensive and now bottoms out their blood pressure is somebody that I'm concerned is having potentially an inferior wall myocardial infarction. And I would not be surprised to find ST elevations on that person's EKG or somebody who's typically running softer pressures, you know, closer to the 100, 110s systolic, who's now suddenly 200s, 210s systolic. That's going to make me think, oh, this could be new acute coronary syndrome, but it's also going to push me more towards diagnoses like an aortic dissection, which often presents with new onset hypertension that's also often refractory to the typical meds you might get for somebody who's hypertensive. So less than using, you know, the vital signs to determine who gets a workup, it makes more sense to stratify those who you really, really push to get their stuff done even faster. Obviously, we should be doing that for all our patients, but I'm much more worried about the person who has vital signs that are different from their baseline, who now has new onset chest pain. Yes, absolutely. I feel like in pediatrics, we're always a little bit nervous to order troponins because typically when they are elevated, we are still skeptical of it. And, you know, they're I feel like there can be other things that would cause an elevation in your troponins. Can we talk about those a little bit more? Yeah. And that's not just in pediatrics. I think there definitely is a higher pretest probability amongst adults to have true plaque rupture, um, which we're primarily worried about. But we see troponin elevation with all sorts of things. And depending on your institution, you'll have different thresholds for your troponin. And some institutions will have a very low sensitivity or high sensitivity troponin. So therefore, it catches a lot more of your troponin differences. So with that being said, I think it's important to consider the clinical context with which you're getting the troponin. If you're using the troponin to figure out your chest pain and they have classic ACS type symptoms, then I would consider type one or plaque rupture leading to your chest pain and ischemia to be top diagnosis. If the patient has many other symptoms, like they're septic or their hemoglobin is three, or I mean, there are a variety of reasons. Another possibility could be that they have type two MI, which is like supply demand mismatch leading to ischemia of the heart. So the end result is similar in that you're causing damage to the myocardium, but the primary reason for why that is happening is different and the management is different as well. So I think with that being said, it's just overall important to take a really good history and to remember what clinical context the patient is in. Okay. So we've got our type 1 MIs that are true plaque rupture. Type 2 MIs are demand-mediated ischemia. Do I have that right? And are there other categories that I'm missing or that we should be aware of? You do. Um, I think those are probably the most important ones to remember. I, I mean, there are five types overall, and it's related to if you have a PCI, is this PCI related or not, or if you have a cabbage. If it is. But I, I think for at least the pediatrician's purview, it's just important to know, is this true plaque rupture or is this thrombosis related to a PCI or a stent or is this thrombosis related to a cabbage? versus everything else. And so I think, I don't know about you, Charles, but for the great majority of the patients who have had troponin elevations, demand ischemia is quite prevalent. And so I just don't want to discount that as a potential diagnosis. And just to sort of define some terms that we use all the time in in Mm -hmm. internal medicine, but we maybe don't use so much in pediatrics, 
PCI, percutaneous coronary intervention, usually refers to a stent or some sort of intervention where they go into the blood vessel to go into the coronary arteries and do something. And uh, a cabbage, C-A-B-G, it's a very fun word to say, actually stands for coronary artery bypass grafting, which, you know, both PCI and, and cabbage are the methods by which we revascularize mm-hmm. the coronary arteries, really revascularize the heart. And then while we're defining terms, can you guys talk to me cool. about stable versus unstable angina? I'll let Ashley take that one. <laughs> <laughs> the Probably the more important distinction is between ACS and unstable angina, or not important, but the easier distinction to make. So if you have chest pain, but you don't have any troponin elevation, that is considered, and if you have chest pain, that sounds ischemic in nature, where it's worse with exertion, or if you have dyspnea, that's worse with exertion, then, um, and you don't have any troponin elevation or ST changes, then that's unstable angina. If you have troponin elevation at all, then it becomes unstemmy or STEMI, and the differentiating marker is ST elevation or ST changes. Gotcha. Yeah, and it can be a very frustrating thing to encounter because it wouldn't it be lovely if we ordered troponin and it was just normal, and then we could say, oh, look at that. It was anxiety all along, and it was not cardiac. But the reality is that patients and adult patients have decades of really like chronic disease that can lead to elevated troponins, like chronic kidney disease, end-stage renal disease. Really, with you know, as with anything, troponin elevation is a product of how much is released into the blood, i.e. cardiac death, and how much it's eliminated. And things that impair elimination, like a chronic kidney disease, certainly can cause an elevated troponin. So I'd say, yeah, in most cases where I've ordered a troponin, it has not been normal and it has not been because of plaque rupture. But it's you have to figure out when it is, uh, which is why we do more than just order a troponin and, and call it a day. And this sounds like it would be almost impossible to interpret it on a dialysis patient. Is that is that, is that the case clinically? Um, I won't say impossible, but it does make it more difficult, especially since patients who require dialysis are at higher risk for having, you know, type one myocardial infarctions, which is why you really need to, you know, not take the labs in isolation, not take the vitals in isolation, but really look at the whole picture. Does this person in front of you with all the labs, the EKG, and all the objective data, the vital signs, uh, and your physical exam, of course, laid out, are they presenting like somebody who has cardiac causes of chest pain. And the more important decision is, is this somebody that I need to intervene on? Because there is a timeline that is very important in myocardial death where early intervention really helps and and prevents heart muscle breakdown. Um, So you need to figure out how, you know, how quickly you need to intervene. So you send your labs, you know, you're going to be trending the troponin and thinking about it critically you get an EKG. What specifically are you looking for on the EKG that's either going to make you very nervous or going to be very reassuring? So I think first you want to look for a STEMI. So first you look for ST elevations of any sort. So we consider significant ST elevations if they're above one millimeter compared to the highest point of the PR interval. 
After you do that, if you're noticing that there are multiple SD elevations and they're contiguous, which means that they're in the same section of the heart um, or corresponding sections of the heart, then you're more concerned about a STEMI. And so you just need at least two to call it a STEMI and then to start the workup for that. For STEMIs with lead V2 and V3, there's a different criteria based on the age and the gender of the patient where you can have higher ST elevations before you truly call it a STEMI. And so I think to be able to call a STEMI, you just have to be familiar with the vectors and the sections of the heart. And you don't have to memorize it necessarily right away. You can find it easily on the internet. It's on up to date. And so you just find like, okay, I have ST elevations in one NAVL. So let me look it up and up to date. And then you'll see that there are two contiguous leads and then you would call it a STEMI. And while we're on the topic of looking at ST elevations, um, there's a couple of, of key points to to think about, and that is always look at the old EKG mm-hmm. because some people, believe it or not, can actually have chronic stable ST changes on their EKGs. Hopefully you won't <laughs> encounter that too often. And I think it would be reasonable if you're unsure to ask a cardiologist <laughs> about what to do in that situation. Another thing to, to think about is there is a nice handy mnemonic for looking at ST elevations and what these the reciprocal leads are. So you, in an ideal world, will have ST elevations in a distribution of the heart that would be either posterior heart, anterior heart, inferior, or lateral and high lateral. Um, and that luckily makes a word, the word pale. So when you look at the word pale, if you wanted to figure out, oh, you know, I see ST elevations in the anterior leads, which, by the way, you can look up what anterior leads are. But mm-hmm. if you look at how the leads get placed on the heart, on the chest, um, the anterior leads will typically be leads V3 and V4. And then you expect if there's elevations in the anterior leads that in the inferior leads, the next letter in the word pale, you would, in an ideal world, see ST depressions. And then if you saw the elevations in the inferior leads, you know, two, three, and AVF, then you should hopefully see reciprocal depressions in the lateral and high lateral leads, which are V5, V6 are the lateral, and then one in AVL are the high lateral. There are perf- you know, perfectly good diagrams online that you can quickly look up on your phone to see that. Uh, but in general, somebody who has ST elevations with reciprocal depressions, I'm immediately concerned that they have plaque rupture leading to ischemia. So it's like you use PAIL to plot out on the heart what's directly across from each other to see sort of your elevations and your depressions. That's correct. Yeah. And it's also important to note, you know, we we spent quite a bit of time talking about the utility of troponins and Ashley mentioned a, a clinical scenario in which the troponin is normal and the patient still has ACS. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is you get the troponin, it's normal, but then you get the EKG and you're like, what? Two, three and AVF have ST elevations and one AVL, V5, V6 have ST depressions. Does that person have ACS? And the answer is yes. And then you ask, well, well, hopefully you call cardiology first to do a PCI or something <laughs> uh, to revascularize. But then, you know, while you're sitting in the workroom typing up your note on this, on what happened, you wonder to yourself, why was the troponin not elevated? And the reason is because troponin takes between six and 12 hours to elevate right. with a myocardial infarction. So 
That's also a reason why we trend troponins every six hours. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've already kind of talked about what are some appropriate reasons to get cardiology involved. In a typical scenario, you know, kind of a classic textbook case, at what point are you getting them involved? I think at least in the ED, which is the most likely place where you'll see a STEMI, I would probably be getting them involved, one, if I see a STEMI on EKG, which I get pretty quickly. And then two, if they have ACS-like symptoms and they have a troponin elevation. I think there is a low threshold to call cardiology if you're concerned about ACS at all. And so I don't think anyone would be faulted if, you know, I'm not sure about this. And I think this could be ACS. I want to see what cardiology has to say about it. Okay. So before we discuss how to categorize risk for these patients and our initial treatment options, there are risk scoring systems that help you guide your pretest probability. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, there's a couple. And it can be actually (laughs) a little bit overwhelming when you see just how many different scoring systems there are. And they all look pretty much the same. But, you know, how do you choose which one to use and when do you use it? But the ones that you can actually apply once somebody comes in with chest pain are heart score and Timmy score. And basically, you can look on MD Calc um, and you can you can plot it in. But it's the heart score is based off of how suspicious you are based off of the history. You can be slightly suspicious, moderately suspicious or highly suspicious. Um, the EKG changes, which could be normal, significant ST deviations or something in between. Um, i.e. not normal, but not significant ST deviations. And then the age risk factors, including hypertension, diabetes, obesity, smoking, positive family history, and then the initial troponin. Um, So this one does require that you, you have a troponin level. And this is useful and at the same time, not that useful because, you know, in order to score a high enough score, on this criteria to trigger to yourself that this might be a cardiac event, all you actually need to have is being old and having coronary artery disease risk factors, which is so many patients in the hospital already have a heart score that is elevated. Now, it is particularly useful in situations where you might not ordinarily suspect a cardiac event, i.e. maybe a younger person who has other diseases which make them more likely to have cardiac events and they're scoring high in the heart score, that would make me really concerned. But certainly someone who has, you know, a normal heart score, but has a history that just really sounds like ACS, I'm not going to completely write out the diagnosis of ACS and vice versa. Somebody who scores a two or a three in the heart score, uh, it's important to look at what they scored for uh, and see if this is truly Uh, because of a new onset cardiac event, or is it just because this patient is a setup for cardiac events, i.e. they have coronary artery disease risk factors. And the TIMI score is also very similar. Um, It includes age, coronary artery disease risk factors, positive troponins, um, but then it has some other differentiating factors, like do they have history of severe angina, EKG, ST changes, aspirin use, or if they have known CAD with known stenosis of the coronary arteries. So you can, and same thing, it's possible to score fairly, you know, highly on that scale and have the patient not have a new cardiac event. And it's possible to score Mm -hmm. fairly low on that and for them to have a cardiac event. So I would not 
put my money on using one or two of those systems to determine whether or not somebody is having a new onset cardiac event. Understood. So what com- what happens if we, you know, kind of moving into treatment and management, what happens if we get the EKG back? It's a STEMI. What are we, what are the next steps we're doing immediately? One is to call cardiology or some hospital systems have a code that opens up their cath lab. Um, and so I would call that code if it's available. And then it's the same management pearl that we learned in medical school about giving aspirin right away, loading them with aspirin. So 325 milligrams, giving them antiplatelet agents. So Plavix is the classic one we were taught, but you can also use Ticagrelor, which has been studied a lot. And then there's also antithrombotic agents. So using unfractionated heparin, so you can start a heparin drip or you can do Lovenox. And then there are some other things like Statin beta blockers that are useful. I would be careful with a beta blocker just because sometimes you can have decompensated heart failure as a result of your MI. And so if you have signs of decompensated heart failure, then I would stay away from the beta blocker. And then finally, there are the oxygen and uh, morphine that's classically taught. I would say both of those are controversial in that Oxygen isn't thought to be necessarily needed if you're not hypoxic. So as long as you have a SAD above 90%, you don't need to have oxygen. And then for morphine, it's only if it's uncontrolled after you've tried your nitroglycerin multiple times, so like three times to say, and they still have really bad chest pain, then you can use morphine as another agent. So like reviewing that. So that's aspirin, Plavix, heparin, statin, beta blocker or like the major things that you want on board, and then adding on oxygen or morphine if needed. It's good to know about the oxygen. I, I always... Yeah, that's interesting. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not throwing it on anybody. Yeah. What are you looking at for decompensated heart failure? Like, what do these people look like? So I think it's a little bit di- different than in kids, because I think in kids, we mainly look at the liver, and we don't really look at the JVD as much. Mm-hmm. In adults, I think JVD is like your first marker. And if you're really good at point of care ultrasound, then taking a look at your SVC with an ultrasound would, is clutch. But if you don't have those, um, then you can look at like lower extremity edema, or if they're if on their chest x ray, they have a lot of infiltrates that or by basilar infiltrates that look like pulmonary edema or things like that, then you would consider them to be decompensated. I'm interested in the fact that when we're worried about the cardiac output of a child, we're always feeling for hepatomegaly. We're always tracking the size of the liver. And when we're worried about cardiac output for an adult, we're just always looking at the JVD. And I know, I mean, in the kids, I mean, it's, I don't, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The fact is, if the, if the, if the blood vessel can dilate to accommodate the blood, then it's not going to necessarily look look overloaded so mm. and adults have stiffer vessels in general oh, so it's gonna also it's gonna show up more in them. Yeah. yeah okay and wait what about the beta blocker from what i've been taught i don't know where this is in my memory but it has to be pretty overt that you're decompensated in order for you to hold back on the beta blocker so if you're worried use low doses and Really, the goal is to have a beta blocker on board within the first 24 hours. So it's not one of those things like aspirin and Plavix where you really want to have it on board like in the first couple hours. The goal is to have it soon. But if you're worried that they might decompensate because of hemodynamic instability or whatnot, then it's okay. 
to wait until cardiology tells you to or absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you have some time to kind of assess them or kind of observe them to see how they yeah, that's absolutely. that's good to hear. Yeah. And then one more question, walk me through like I've never done it before. I'm walking into the patient room and I want to assess their GVD. What's your process? Yeah. Ashley, you're going to do cardiology. You do this one. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is like it's it's so ob- it's it's so obvious when it's obvious, but it's almost never yeah. obvious. <laughs> yeah. I think I I mean, it's so crazy difficult. I think initially it, there's like a very high learning curve and I don't still don't get it reliably. And I have to have a cardiologist next to me to make sure that I'm looking at the right thing. And so what I usually do is stand on the right side of the patient, have the patient turn their head to the left. And you should angle the patient, I mean, starting at 30 degrees and shine a light on. And then what I think I'm really looking for is the triphasic um, circulations, I guess, in their neck which kind of differentiates it from the carotid. I mean, you can do all those things to try to get rid of the carotid impulse, but I just haven't found that to be super, super helpful. And then sometimes if I can't find it on one side, then I'll have them actually turn the other way and look on the other side of their neck. Yeah. And I'll say, I'll also say that there are some other tricks um, and sort of pitfalls for looking at JVD that I learned from, you know, some of our heart failure experts at the VA and that is, first of all, positioning is everything. So having them start at 30 degrees is the first place to start. However, if somebody has really, really overt JVD and they're very decompensated, and you can't already tell that from their other symptoms and, and their like physical exam, um, it's possible that you might not see a nice uh, like a, a meniscus of where the JVD ends. You know, you, you always see in, in every single note, you always see in every single note, JVD up to the earlobe, which makes every single heart failure expert have an aneurysm when you type that. But the reality is that if it's so overt and the JVD is so high and they're laying at 30 degrees, you may not see the meniscus because it's just so high. The entire thing is distended. So that at that point, you would need to actually sit them up further and you may, maybe 45 degrees or... Uh, 60 degrees to let it bring down, or even 90 degrees. Yeah. And really, really bad heart failure. Um, you can actually see JVD sitting at 90 degrees and then vice versa. If somebody has really, um, really mild JVD, which is probably not what you're looking for in somebody who you're concerned is having to compensate heart failure, mm-hmm. you actually need to lay them more and more flat. So less than 30 degrees. Mm-hmm. And you can also, some of the techniques that Ashley was mentioning to try and, you know, check oh, am I looking at the carotid or am I looking at the JVD? Mm-hmm. Is you, you should be able to extinguish the JVD with your fingers. You know, you, you, you would have to press pretty hard to stop blood flow through the carotids, but it's not that hard to stop blood flow through the, the jugular veins. So you can put your finger down on it. And if it extinguishes, boom, you know that you were looking at um, a vein and not an artery. And you'll just put some pressure distal to it? You actually do proximal. You do proximal? Because- yeah, yeah, proximal. And then um, if, it, if it extinguishes, I guess, sort of distal from the perspective of the heart, um, then you know that you're looking at a vein. And, and just so you know, like, it will be incredibly frustrating when you're trying to look at JVD. Yeah. Understand that a big portion of internal medicine is two, two well-esteemed attendings arguing over whether or not the patient has extra volume. <laughs> 
and they will disagree so much better about it (laughs) they will disagree and you will diarise the patient and then the next day bolus them so don't don't worry too much this isn't the be-all end-all of figuring out if somebody has to compensate heart failure there are other more overt signs new dyspnea Mm -hmm. if they have crackles that they didn't have before Mm -hmm. you know that that can clue you in uh, to that. And then a big, uh, a common question that you'll get asked, and then I'll get off the this particular topic. The nurse is going to page you because, hey, this patient has a history of heart failure and they're already on a beta blocker. Do I stop the beta blocker? And the answer in general is no. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if they've been chronically on that medication, yeah. they can stay on it. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't necessarily pull it off. It actually might be bad to pull it off. Right. If somebody has a history of COPD or asthma, you know, beta blockers can trigger an asthma exacerbation or a COPD mm-hmm. flare. You know, do I do I not give beta blocker in that situation? And the answer is give the beta blocker because you'd rather <laughs> you'd rather that they have a mild asthma attack than their heart failure to compensate because you didn't appropriately treat them with a beta blocker after an MI. Patients have COPD and heart failure almost 100% of the time. Gotcha. There's also like the hepatojugular reflex. Yeah. Yes. But you're supposed to push up on the liver Mm -hmm. and then the elevation has to stay up for like, it's like something obscene, like 30 seconds or something. Whoa. Okay. Wait, I just found it in the textbook Bates Guide to the Physical Exam. And they say... Patient supine, gentle pressure over the right upper quadrant or middle abdomen for 10 seconds, Some, but some suggest one minute. And then, no, they just say you repeat the JVD and an increase of over three centimeters is a positive test. Wait, they also say that in normal subjects, the JVP may transiently rise, but then it will return to normal or decrease within 10 seconds. So I guess what you're, what you're getting out there is that if you have decreased cardiac output, if your volume up, your increase in JVP after triggering the hepatojugular reflex will last longer than 10 seconds. And some people want it to last for a really long time. Yeah. You can always cheat if the patient has a central line. Oh, yeah. And just transduce a CVP. Okay. So let's talk about the acute monitoring. You had mentioned that troponin takes about six hours to change. And so we'll trend it usually Q6 or Q12, but not more frequently. Is that correct? Yeah. So typically troponin can take between six and 12 hours to elevate after cardiac is, you know, ischemia. And it's possible that on your initial troponin, you don't, you don't capture what would, uh, what is actually an end STEMI. So we do trend it every six hours. And then we also look for... Yeah, yeah. So let's say you, we've got very low sp- suspicion for ACS and we think, but we still want to rule out an NSTEMI. I know we're trending troponins about every six... What other things do we want to keep an eye on? Are we trending EKGs? Do we need to get an echo? Yeah. So one of the things if the, is if the patient is not already on telemetry, you should put them on telemetry. You don't necessarily need to get you know, EKGs every X number of hours, but if they certainly have recurrence of their chest pain, that might be a reason to get another EKG. And, you know, you're really looking for, because you're not going to trend troponins until infinity, until a discharge, you know? So you, we've, in general, will trend every six hours until it peaks. And then, you know, you'll see it peaks. And then the next one is six hours later, it falls. And then you can say, okay, 
Uh, I know now that whatever event potentially led to all of this has now resolved uh, and I can stop training the troponins. If there is never an elevated troponin, you just do it three times. And then after 18 hours of no troponin elevation, it's it's extremely unlikely that they had, you know, an end stemming. And I will say like the EKG is only worth mentioning to maybe get it another time is because it has a fairly low sensitivity in catching ACS that first time. So even if you had that negative EKG that first time, you shouldn't totally say, well, they had a negative EKG, this can't be ACS or this can't be a STEMI. Is this like your patient in the ED, you're admitting for a rollout and you'll repeat it once they get up to the floor, things like that? Yeah, if they still have chest pain immediately. I think some people will, some institutions and practices will get it every six hours as part of their clinical practice. But the way Charles and I have been taught, we don't routinely get it every six hours. Yes, gotcha. Yeah, and, and you know, we put so much into looking for ST elevations, but the reality is that there are other EKG changes that can be indicative of ischemia. Um, and things to look out for, uh, and reasons that it's good to look at an old EKG is a lot of patients will come in with some sort of chronic bundle branch block. Uh, you know, having a left bundle branch block is not an uncommon thing to have on an old EKG, but a new bundle branch block is a strong indicator that something has happened to the heart's conduction system, and it can be uh, acute coronary syndrome. And then other things that you look for, you think back to medical school, it takes time for ST segments to rise, which is, as Ashley said, why it's getting one EKG is not the be-all end-all of ruling out a STEMI, but other things you look for are Q waves in contiguous leads consistent with some sort of region of the heart, and then T wave inversions are also the, the classic other thing that you can look for, but Certainly there is some, and I'm sure you can find data, I don't know off the top of my head, Mm -hmm. of how long it takes for ST elevations to rise, because it takes time for troponins to rise. It also takes time for ST elevations to rise. Mm -hmm. So throughout the rest of this hospitalization, we're working closely with cardiology. We're trending. I know we probably shouldn't give them any ibuprofen, right? Are there any other medications that we should definitely avoid or just be like, just don't give it to, to this patient this time? I, so I think ibuprofen is probably the, or NSAIDs are the main thing. And then there are a couple of other things that you shouldn't have patients on while they're hospitalized, for instance. But I think that's the main thing. NSAIDs, I think just by nature of how it interacts with the different enzymes in your body, you just want to be careful about those. Charles, do you know of any other? Not off the top of my head, but it does bring up a good point of making sure that you do a good medicine reconciliation, not only on admission, but if you do identify some sort of acute coronary syndrome to make sure that the medications that they're, that they're not missing any of their medications. Mm. In particular, a good way to get thrown out of the hospital by a cardiologist is to accidentally discontinue one of the antiplatelet agents when they're a fresh dent. So do make sure that they are on their aspirin and their either Belinta, which is Ticagrelor, or other Plavix which is clopidogrel, because mm-hmm. that that will not bode well with the patient and with cardiology <laughs> and probably with the patient safety team. Yes, that is my, hadn't thought about it, it's my new biggest fear. <laughs> it's only for a certain period of time. It is when you're really worried, yeah. Mm-hmm. Before they're revascularized. Yeah. You can get into a lot of tough situations where the patient, like I had a patient fracture their hip right after they had a stent and now you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm dual anti platelet agenting this this guy who's probably going to have a traumatic chemoarthrosis and 
what do you yeah. do? Yeah. So oh just gosh. pray that that doesn't happen. Yep. Yeah. Any other things to keep in mind while we're getting these patients ready to dispo and ready to go home? Well, I feel like a lot of the times it depends on what cardiology wants on board. So it depends if they had gotten a stent or some sort of like if they got a cabbage, what kind of antiplatelet agent they're going to go home on. But typically, you'll wait for the cardiac surgeon's direction to decide like what sort of antiplatelet therapy and how long they need to be on it. If they are were on a GP2-3 inhibitor, then how long they should be on that for, how long they should be on the heparin drip for. And I think that all depends on how high risk these lesions are that they find. And then depending on usually their EF, you add on other medications like ACE inhibitors or um, other things for heart failure. And usually, as long as they do well on their like mm-hmm. chest pain free, and then after their intervention, their troponins are downtrending, then at that point, they're ready to go home. Usually, we'll discharge them to cardiac rehab. Mm-hmm. And they'll complete that. And they'll follow up with cardiology afterwards. Pretty much doing the same stuff that you would do for any, any discharge, which is making sure that you do a good med rec, make sure that they have appropriate refills and Make sure the patient understands yeah. that they should be taking the medicines that you've prescribed them because it is entirely possible for a patient to Google their aspirin and their plavix and realize that they are both in, in a similar category and say, oh, my doctor maybe only meant to prescribe one or not the other. And then suddenly they show up to the cardiologist's office on just the aspirin and they're having recurrent chest pain and that's not good. So, so they need to know. They need to hear it from you. Yeah. Any closing thoughts or things we've missed? Um, I think the one resource that I really liked um, was there's a great review article in the New England Journal about acute coronary infarction, I believe. And it was published two years ago. If anybody wants to go a little bit deeper, it's not all that detailed, but it definitely helps you delineate between like how to manage NSTEMIs medically versus with an intervention and what are what's the evidence behind like the first line management um, medications that we use. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys, again. And and thank you for all that you're doing to help broaden the world of adult medicine in this pandemic. We really appreciate your service. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you for having us.